Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, I have a really important and exciting show for you today. This is actually the lead up. This is the first one for this year uh, that is a lead up to the 9-11 anniversary, the 21st anniversary of 9-11. And yes, do remember that. Uh, It's like everyone, each year, every year, the acknowledgement of the 9-11 anniversary gets less and less. And this bothers me tremendously. Of course, as most of you know, if you've been listening to my show, um, I am the terrorist therapist, Um, not a therapist for terrorists, but I use that title to mean that after 9-11, 9-11 changed my life. I'm a born and bred, let's start back. I'm a born and bred New Yorker, born in the Bronx, just like my guest, as you will hear from very soon. Um, and so when uh, when 9-11 happened, I had moved to California, but my heart was and is still in New York. And so when that date happened, when that attack happened, um, I, cha- I it changed my life because I made a promise to myself and to whoever, whoever cares, whoever was listening, um, that I would devote a significant part of my work to helping people cope with the memory of 9-11 Uh, which is still affecting us in many psychological and physical ways. Our whole society has been changed Mm. by 9-11. And um, also help people to become more resilient um, for the ongoing threat of terrorism, which there certainly is. Um, I do a podcast called The Terrorist Therapist Show. And so every week I look for the hottest topic in terror and I can tell you, I mean, I've been doing this for, for over five years now. Uh, so I can tell you that terrorists have not given up. You know, it is not a one and done with 9-11. They are still very much recruiting, especially during COVID, during the lockdown, where people were on their computers a lot more. There was a lot more recruiting being done. Now, of course, in Afghanistan, when terrorists and terrorist groups, uh, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, ISIS can all... Uh, be there, you know, comfortably with no uh, America to bother them. And with a president who is not um, in possession of all of his faculties, let's just say, um, we are more in danger than ever. So we certainly cannot forget 9-11. We cannot forget the heroes. And that's what my guest is going to be talking about. And so today's show um, is called uh, if a 9/11 museum fell in America, would it make a sound? Now the reason why it's called this is because just this past week or so, the 9/11 Tribute Museum in New York um, closed its doors. And there hasn't been much of a sound. Most Americans would have said, oh yes, you know, if it closed, there would be, Um, You know, a lot of people would be upset about that. Well, I think a lot of people were upset, but not enough of them um, decided to do anything about it with their pocketbook or wallet. And of course, really, um, certainly there should have been money found from taxes, New York taxes, federal taxes. Um, This it is so important to remember that day for so many reasons. 
And most of all, because we cannot be in denial, you know, we cannot continue to be in denial that anything like that could happen again. So it's a per perfect time to um, introduce my guest, Brian McDonald. He is the author of a uh, soon-to-be-published book, soon-to-be-released book. Um, it is called, there you go, it is called um, Five Floors Up, the heroic family story of four generations in the FDNY, the F Fire Department of New York. And um, he is one person who also gave more than a, a sigh, more, you know, more than the sigh that, that most Americans gave. Oh, that's too bad. The, the Tribute Museum is closing. That's too bad. Well, uh, some of us feel a lot more strongly than that. And Brian is one of them. So welcome to the show, Brian. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Carroll. It's, uh, it's great. It's a pleasure to be here, an honor to be here, actually. Thank you. Well, let's talk about nine. Let's start with before we get into your book, which and and I, it's so perfect because um, I've written two books on terrorism. My uh, most recent one is Lions and Tigers and Terrorists. Oh, my. How to protect your child in a time of terror. And I had the launch of that book at the New York City Fire Museum, which, of course, would be perfect also for your book. You can tell us about all the different places you're going to be going with your book. But I just wanted to make sure that you knew about that because that museum, hopefully that won't close. Um, right. That museum um, has uh, a lot of interesting, you know, fire, old the old fire. And have you ever been to the New York City Fire Museum? Yes, I have, of course. Yes, yeah. I would think that that would be where you, you got a lot of um, research, right? Yes, one book? of the places I stopped, sure. Yeah. So, all right. So let's talk about 9-11. And what did you think when you heard about the museum? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. It was, a, you know, it, it snuck up on us. You know, it was like, um, you know, I, there were new stories, I guess, that get leading up to it. But, you know, not a lot. It, the apathy was, uh, you know, it was in, in the forest, like your analogy. You know, it was like a tree falling in the forest. Nobody was talking about it. And uh when I heard it, was that, I said, no, this can't be. It, it can't be. There can't be that kind of, you know, everywhere you went for a long time as, as an ex-New Yorker, you know, and all over, all over the country, however, there's, there's bumper stickers, we shall never forget, we shall never forget, all over, we shall never forget. And here's this museum. People are forgetting. And, and you're right. It's not only, yeah, you know, we were talking before the show, a GoFundMe page or something like that could have done it, you know. But that's not where uh, the onus, I believe, anyhow, lies. Yes. Uh, you know, if the city should have taken some kind of steps for this. And I, I know I, I, I don't, um, you know, I don't know the woman, uh, one of the curators, one of the founders of the museum, but she was in She was interviewed. I was watching the interview and she was uh -huh. in talks with the city to uh, to. And they just flat turned her down. I mean, how could you do that? How could how could that, you know, how could and for us, um, it's a special wound for, for us New Yorkers. It's a special wound that something like that happens. And, you know, it's not the first time the city turned its back on us. But it's, for this, it's especially a slap in the face. Yes, yes. Um, I was, yes, as we were saying before the show, I was telling you about how I had seen something like on GoFundMe or, or Change.org or something in March. 
And um, I thought, oh, you know, and, and the reason why the museum needed money is because, of course, um, because of the pandemic and people not, you know, right. wanting to go out and be that close, mingle that closely with other people. And so uh, it lost its main source of revenue, which was the visitors. And we've both been to the Tribute Museum, 9-11 Tribute Museum very special place you get when i went um i mean not only are there amazing things to look at but um it is it is connected very closely to the families who were the victims of the 9 11 uh tragedy and so they have people as docents who are either in the families or i had um, a man who was um he was a first responder and so he was at the uh, ground zero for a long time and he developed cancer as many of the people who worked yes. at ground zero yeah. um, developed. And, um, and so, you know, having someone who um, was personally affected walk you around the museum and talk about things, it was, I'm getting chills now just talking about it. And um, not to take away anything from the other 9-11 museum that I have also been to, the 9-11 um, Memorial Museum, um, but but they're both they were different and they both um, were wonderful and served purposes. And, and yes, they had visitors, of, not just from New York, of course, it was from all over the place. All over the world. Yeah. And, and, you know, for that matter, people all over the world shouldn't forget either. Because right. terrorists, yes. Yes. you know, um, yes. are not just after America and Israel, but um, also after uh, the West, like Western Europe and, and, you know, taking over the world, really. So they haven't forgotten about that. That is still their aim. That is still what, what they um what their ultimate goal is. Right. So so yes, it was it was really very, very sad. Um and, uh, it reminds me, I just wanted one more thing about it. I just wanted to uh mention it reminded me of the story of Kitty Genovese. Oh, right, right. The bystander right. effect. Right, right. Um you know, that ever, Kitty Genovese, um, for those of you who either weren't around or haven't heard of it, it's a, a true story. She was a woman um, who lived in Queens in New York, and um, she got raped and murdered in front of her apartment building. And everybody thought that other people were going to call the police. And so now, of course, it's in dispute now. Some people are saying they tried right. to call the police, but they couldn't get through, whatever. However many people tried they and didn't get through, you know, not everybody obviously tried calling. And so it's it's become known in psychological terms as the bystander effect, where everybody thinks somebody else is going to do it, and so nobody does it. So that's part of what happened here as well. But it still doesn't take the government off the hook for not using our taxes to save it. I agree. And, you know, the um, the difference between the museums, I was thinking about it as you were talking, the diff difference with the 9-11 uh, uh, Memorial Museum is a solemn place, as it should be. It's a solemn uh, place to go. You can feel the, the weight of it. You can practically yes. feel the weight of the tower. And the Tribute Museum was a sad place. It was a sad because it was much more intimate. It wasn't, they're both 
there's this element, you know, it's kind of nuanced there. But there were, the difference was, is that to me, anyhow, is that the Tribute Museum was a sad place because it was it, you were able to touch the families. You were able to touch the people affected by it. You know, they had all the posters. Uh, uh, the, have you seen posters? When I was there, they had all of those. Oh, yes. Have you seen posters that were all papered in New York? You were in, a, you were in Malibu, in L.A. at the time, but... In New York, you couldn't go anywhere. Uh, subway uh, stations, um, uh, light lamp posts, uh, um, uh, letter boxes, every place you'd see these uh, posters, you know, and they had some of those in there. They also had, um, you know, pieces, I mean, uh, uh, chilling, like pieces of the fuselage of the plane that, that went in. They had um, uh, boarding passes, somebody's boarding pass that was on a plane in there, you know. But um, but they also had death certificates of uh, some of the people that that were uh, that died. My and the main character. I know we'll get into my book later on. I'm not trying to segue out of it. But my the main character of my book was the first firefighter and the highest ranking firefighter, uh, the first firefighter to be issued a, a death certificate that said he was murdered on it. It said huh, huh. It, it, the cause of death was murder. You know that's what it says on its on his death certificate. He was the oldest and highest ranking fire, fighter to die that day. He was 71 years old. I get choked up thinking about it because it was a true, true American hero. And in a way, by closing that museum, you're not only forgetting about, you're forgetting about the people that died, the families that survived. I mean, it's just, it's a travesty. It's really a travesty. Yes, yes. Um, yes, because like in the, in the um, Memorial Museum, um, they do have, I mean, I, I, you're right. In the Memorial Museum, there's a heaviness. Uh, yes. with gray stone. All, it's all gray stone, right? Right. Um, and, uh, I mean, you feel like you can't talk, really, because, you know, I mean, I guess the sound echoes. That's part of it. But uh, um, just like this very holy, in a way, kind of place. Yes. And, um, and in the Tribute Museum, uh, yes, it was sad because you're more personal with with the people. There are more more uh, um, more evidence of the people, um, and and so you can feel can more. It's more personal. You feel more connected to the people. I mean, both have their place, and and uh, I, you know, it's I'm kind of surprised that the um, families, you know, especially. Um, Goldman Sachs, right? Wasn't Goldman Sachs the big brokerage firm that was in the Twin Towers? Well, yeah, Goldman Sachs lost. Um, oh God, the name just went out of my. But it was another huge brokerage firm that um, that uh, lost the majority of people. But yeah, there was a big amount of money. You're talking about a, a, a huge amount of money that still uh, that still uh, people. Um, uh, you know, not only the not only the firms, but the families in the firms. Where you're talking about substance, people with substance. Yes, you know? and nobody could contribute. You know, um, enough. I mean, the group couldn't contribute enough to oh, yeah. uh, to save yeah. the museum. It's a shame. It's apathy. You know, it's apathy, and people don't. You know, um, and it's a shame. You know, we were talking. I was uh, I, I was looking at an interview of, of one of the co-founders um, uh, of the museum uh, who, who was a firefighter and he lost his son in the towers and uh, in the collapse. And he went around. Uh, he was on the pile like the fellow that, uh, that uh, developed cancer. He was on the pile for nine months, you know, and he was a co-founder. And he himself would take the you go into the museum. That's who your guide would be around yes. a, a man who lost his son. 
in the collapse of firefighter. Yes, yes. yes. So that's, you know, yes. it's just, it's crazy. Very, very, and then, very sad. And then also you, wasn't there a part of it? I can't remember now, or that was separate. I think it was two different doses. Um, but they had part of it. You could go on a, in addition to going through the museum, you could have somebody, a docent, walk you over to Ground Zero yes. and yes. talk to you there too. Yes. And especially, yes. I think the museum opened in 2006, 2007. So it was while, while the construction of the new tower was going. And there still was evidence, I guess, you know, of 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 what the, that area went through, you know, uh, the devastation that that area went through. Really. If anyone who's listening to this hasn't gone um, to the the uh, memorial, 9-11 Memorial Museum, and hasn't gone to excuse me, ground zero, please. I mean, I guess there isn't a way that they could take ground zero away unless, unless they sold it to somebody, to a developer to build on top of it, right? Right. <laughs> oh, man, this is really serious stuff. Uh, you know, I'm sorry. I, just before we go, I know we got to uh, stop for a break, but it was Cantor Fitzgerald that was the- Oh, uh, that's it. I'm sorry. Cantor yes, not yes. Goldman Sachs, right? Yes. Cantor Fitzgerald, yes. yes, yes, they they can um they have more money, <laughs> they spend more money for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we do have to take a break. My guest is Brian McDonald. Um, his book Five Floors Up: The Heroic Family Story of Four Generations in the FDNY in the Fire Department of New York. And when we come back, we will talk all about that. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Follow the Voice America Variety Channel on Twitter. Our hosts always have something to say, and we know that you do too. We tweet on today's hot topics, and you're welcome to follow us. Speak up and join in at Voice AM Variety. That's at Voice AM Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 
472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, with an amazing guest named Brian McDonald. He, his latest book, his new book that's going to be coming out in time uh, for the 21st anniversary of 9-11, is called Five Floors Up, The Heroic Family Story of Four Generations in the FDNY. But before we get to that, um, he is a very prolific writer, not only for of books under his own name, but as a ghost writer, books that he's written for other people, for and with other people. And some of these others are called My Father's Gun, Indian Summer, Safe Harbor, Sorry. A Murder in Nantucket, Last Call at Elaine's, and In the Middle of the Night. So uh, maybe we could talk a little later about uh, some of those, but let's talk now about the new book coming out and Five Floors Up. Why, what made you, you know, we were talking in the first segment about the demise of the 9-11 Tribute Museum, and here you are coming out with a new book related to 9-11. What made you at this particular time, 21 years later, (laughs) (laughs) come out with this book? Well, it's an it's an interesting story. I um, uh, first of all, I, this is not my first uh, uh, try at a generational civil service New York family. I I wrote about uh, the first book, My Father's Gun, was about my own family, a family of cops. I have three generations of New York City cops in my family, so it was like a history of the police department seen from my family's eyes. Huh. And a woman named um, Beth Fian, who was doing a uh, documentary about her father-in-law. Uh, William Chief William Fian, who was the hero on 9-11, um, um, came, was introduced to me through uh, uh, several uh, interactions. And she uh, she said she's doing this documentary and someone told her that a book would be a good companion. And I said, yeah, yes, it would be. It's a great story. And so the Fian family is the family of four generations. So she she was my entree into the family. I got to talk to uh, family members. There are three active members of the Fian family who are still on the fire department, um, two battalion chiefs and a, and a uh, young, young man who's a uh, firefighter in Brooklyn. Uh, and um, the first generation was the grandfather. It was a man named William. There was a lot of William Fians in this uh-huh. family. They didn't fool with the names. There was a, <laughs> Williams and Elizabeths for as far as the eye could see. So um, William Fian, the first one was uh, he he got he came on to the fire uh, the fire department in the 1920s, and he retired in 1958. So his part is so was so I love doing historical storytelling, and uh-huh. that era of the of the fire department in New York City is so colorful. It was they were bandits and 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 wonderful and 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 heroes and life saving uh, life saving people. So um, he was the first generation that I wrote about. And then, the, but the story revolves. The whole story revolves around this fellow um, uh, William uh, Chief Chief Dolphy and the, uh, the man who was killed on nine eleven. And he was a remarkable, remarkable uh, American hero. He served in every rank in the fire department, including the fire commission. He was a fire commissioner for about uh, as an first he was an acting fire commissioner, and then he was made fire commissioner back in the David Dinkins administration. That's how long ago when Rudy Giuliani beat Dinkins. Uh, 
uh, Dinkins' fire commissioner quit and joined Giuliani's campaign. <laughs> Shows uh -huh. you where the firefighters' uh, allegiance lied. Uh -huh. And uh, Dinkins was left without a fire commissioner. So this fellow, Chief Fian, was the first deputy commissioner. He promoted him as acting commissioner. And then when he lost the election to Giuliani the last month he was in office, he took the acting off so he'd be in the, in the record books as, as the 28th uh, fire commissioner uh -huh. in New York. Very interesting. And uh, so he was, uh, so 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 I got my, I, I heard about, I mean, there's a long, long an, uh, answer to your question, but I had heard, okay. once I started to hear about the characters and, and, and the breadth of the story, I just I couldn't wait to get into it. And and we were supposed to come out on the 20th anniversary and the pandemic, like everybody else, the pandemic pushed everything back. And uh, mm -hmm. and uh, so here I am on the 21st anniversary. But that's OK. That's OK for me. I, I don't care. As a matter of fact, you know, a lot of, there was a lot of uh, uh, traffic and everybody was, you know, the 20th was a, a big deal. And now I kind of I'm standing on my own here on the yes, 21st. Yeah. So, it's, so it's great. Yeah. So, um, did you, so, so you were able to get this story from the three people who you mentioned from that family who were still, you said, act, well, they were, they were still active in the fire department, but were, did you talk to like even more than them? Um, oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, the family member, the family was, you know, how, um, and this is not just a New York city thing. This is across the country, but civil servant family are notoriously guarded. They don't want anybody knowing their business. They don't want journalists coming in. They don't want things like that. But I, because uh, Beth Fian, uh, you know, kind of championed my cause, I was able to ingratiate myself with the family. And I got great interviews with the adult children of this uh, man, uh, Fian, Chief Fian. And uh, I also, the fire department was wonderful. They opened their doors to me. I got, uh, there's a uh, talk about doing research there's a museum on the uh, on site of the um fire academy on randall's island mm. it's called the Mand library which is also closing people are turning their back there's there's material in that library from the turn of last century there's handwritten captain's logs that are all going they're actually disintegrating literally disintegrating because they haven't been treated and and preserved it's a it's a travesty but, uh, but the fire department was very, very uh, gracious to me. And because Beth was doing a, um, a, um, a documentary on her father-in-law, they had um, done interviews of him when he was alive, of course, uh, way back, hour-long, two-hour-long interviews. So I had uh -huh. wonderful first-person uh -huh. material that came right from him, wow. which, I, which I used you know, uh, throughout, the, throughout his story. Wow, that's fabulous. You know, here's an idea. <laughs> it's it's um, easy for me to say, but what about if you and Beth, um, well, like, let's just talk about you because that's easier. Um, what about if you donated, um, made, the, made your um, launch also connected to like that, however much, you know, a dime, a dollar, whatever you feel comfortable with of each of the books, went to preserve that library well it's funny you should say that because we're we're actually in talks with the uh with the fire department and there's a the fire department has a foundation it's the fire fire new york city fire department uh, foundation 
And that's their um, fundraising arm. It's their, you know, as a as a as an entity, as an agency, the fire department can't raise money. It can't do anything like that because it's a city agency. But they have an arm. They have this this foundation that does it. And I'm um, we're 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 having we're uh, right now in negotiations with them to have some kind of a, um, a, a like a it's not a fundraiser, but it's to get the word out. We're going to be getting the word out. Now, I would be glad to give, I mean, I don't know how my publisher would feel about that, but I would be glad to give, uh, you know, uh, donate some of the, some of my, uh, um, some of my uh, royalties uh, to, to the museum. But it, somebody has to do something because it, again, like the 9-11 Tribute Museum, it's something that's going and, and, and it will never come back. You know, it'll never come back. The, the material is literally disintegrating. Uh, disintegrating it'll never come back it's it's a travesty like i said well so um so let's talk more about um some of the people in in um in this family i mean one of the things that i think you i read somewhere was about um how and it really is a serious uh thing um you know, firefighter, and I'm sure I'll ask you later about your family with my father's gun. Um, I don't know that those that those people exist anymore. The people like like this family that you wrote about, um, the the um, your fa family. You know, in other words, families where generation upon generation either became police officers or firefighters, and they they were. Um, and they were so proud and dedicated and and keeping everybody safe and they were so lauded and all of that um and even though you know they it's not a very uh financially rewarding um job um and yet they wouldn't do anything else that they were so proud of what they were doing do you what is your what is your feeling after having done all this research with this family and living in new york and and um what do you think about future generations? You know, it's it's funny. Uh, it's a great question because I think it's a time uh, that's passing us by. And, uh, you know, uh, and I think I realized that when I was writing the book that it was part of my uh, duty to to uh, memorialize that time because it is time. Now, that said, the New York City Fire Department is an anomaly. It is still passed down, maybe because the job is so much fun when they're not putting their lives on the line. I mean, you have guys and now girls, but mostly for, for most of its time, it was just guys living together in a house. It was like a frat house, for, you know, with with boots and, and hats. You know, a lot of them I had. I interviewed one firefighter who said uh, it was more fun than grammar school. You know, I asked him what is uh, to encapsulate his career. So uh, one of the um, the. Um, Brian Davin, who is the son-in-law of the main character, and my, and the story follows from him. I use Brian because his son, the grandson, is the fourth generation. There is three generations of Fians, but the uh, the uh, I wanted it to reach four generations. Uh, so I use the son-in-law and and the grandson of I this see. Captain Fian. So I mean Chief Fian and uh, Brian Davin, where where Connor Davin, the youngest, works now in Brownsville, Brooklyn. They call the all firehouses in New York have nicknames, you know, the uh, uh, you know wh whatever their, their nicknames, the Lords of Flatbush or whatever they call themselves. 
the uh, his his firehouse is called the House of the Rising Sun, because there have been and there's probably more now. But he was the twentieth firefighter to serve at that house where his father had served. So there were mm. twenty firefighters that their sons had carried on the legacy of their fathers in just that one firehouse. Uh -huh. So, uh, so yeah, in a way, but, but even, even, even having said that, I, I, you know, it's, it's, it is, it's, you know, people don't want to be civil servants anymore. They don't want to do service. They don't want to, uh, you know, run into burning buildings when they can, you know, uh, whatever, you know, uh, invent an app. Or something I don't know what they do. <laughs> when they can work from home, right? <laughs> you can't be a firefighter and work from home. That's for right. Sure. Right. There's no the, unless uh, there's your no... fire is burning, your house is burning. <laughs> <laughs> so, um. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know that that bravery, um, that courage, that desire to help people. So when you were doing your research and talking to people, like, did they? Did anybody talk to you about that, that they're worried about um, what's going to become of this profession or what's going to become of New York or any place um, if firefight if there aren't going to be as many dedicated firefighters? Well, yeah, I mean, plenty of people, because I talk to a lot of retired firefighters and retired firefighters, you know, they're uh, crusty, they're a crusty group. And they're always saying it'll never be as good as it was with us. You know, everybody is like that. It especially gets that way after a few beers, you know, <laughs> then they really get down on the, the new fire department. But uh, <laughs> yeah. but the um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I think it's a precious it's something that's very precious. And I'm glad I'm I'm really I'm really proud of the fact that I wrote this book because it does capture a time that's that's slipping by. And, uh, you know, um, at least somebody will be able to read about it if they can actually experience uh -huh. it or see it. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's. Uh, yeah, it's uh, you know, um it's even worse and well we can talk about that when we talk about your your other book my father's gun but um it's even worse for um for uh police officers and police officer families i mean you know with all of the things that that's all the disrespect um that police are getting i mean it's just huh um well t getting back to the um the story of the main character who was who was killed in the uh, chief Feehan, um, uh, who was killed. What was his, can you give us a little, like a sort of a little synopsis of his story? Like when he was a little boy, well, I guess his, he had family before. Yes, him. he was, he was, uh, he followed his father onto the fire department. Yes. He wanted to be, for his, for a short term, for a short time, he wanted to be a, a Catholic priest. And the, but huh. he says that he, he, he decided not to become a priest after he, figured out that the girls at St. Bishop uh, McLaughlin high, high School were a lot more interesting than Gregorian chants. So, <laughs> so he went, he, yeah. he followed his father's, uh, his father handed him the baton and he went on to the fire department. Uh -huh. And to give you a little synopsis of how he was, the uh, the book is called Five Floors Up and people ask about it. And yeah. it, it, it was actually a saying that came out of the time when he was a captain in a um, firehouse in Harlem during the 1970s. And in the 1970s in uh, New York, in the fire department, was known as the war years. Uh, people might have uh, heard of the uh, expression, the Bronx is burning. 
well, it wasn't only the Bronx that was burning back then. It was Harlem. It was the Lower East Side. It was parts of Brooklyn, inner city uh, neighborhoods in Brooklyn. And a lot of it was due to the uh, the city uh, cutting back on the fire department's apparatus, cutting back huh. on the crews, closing firehouses and things. A lot of people, a lot of blame goes to landlords who burnt down their bu buildings to get the money for. And that's not that's not the case. Uh, the, more of it was because of the city's turning their back on these neighborhoods. Anyhow, so he goes to he, he he's still a young man and he goes to his first day as captain of this very tough firehouse and he walks in his first day and around the table is his is his men and they're sitting at the table completely naked nothing <laughs> birthday suits you know and this is a uh, uh, this uh, this is a baptism of fire they were putting him to the test you know and he realizes this first thing the first thing that comes into his mind is that it wasn't a pretty sight he was looking at the okay. second thing that came into his mind was he better you know he better this is an inflection point how he reacts is going to set yes. the tone for him as being a, yes. he didn't say a word he just filled his plate had something to eat finished went up to his office without saying a word and he passed <laughs> the uh, he passed they, uh, being a firefighter in Harlem then, because of the uh, because of the lack of funds and everything, the, the joke went that all they all they were issued were raincoats and sneakers. That's the only equipment they had, and it was a it was a terrifying and a, an amazingly dangerous time to be a firefighter. And he wow. was a captain in one of the most dangerous firehouses. Raincoats and sneakers. <laughs> well, it was a joke. I mean, it was you know because they because of the lack of uh, the lack uh, of uh, that was like uh, that was a, a metaphor. I mean, it, wasn't yes, it, was, it was like the, <laughs> the lack of equipment that, that they had. Okay. Yeah. Well, we 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 kind of have to take a break now. But when we come back, let's let's continue with the um, star of your book and to tell a little bit more of his story. Okay. Sure. Um, so again, my guest um, is Brian McDonald. The book is oh well, you were going to tell me five floors up. That's what we'll. That's what we'll start with, with the next segment. Five yeah. Floors Up, the heroic family story of four generations in the FDNY. And we'll hear why it's five floors up. So stay tuned. <laughs> the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, Check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Tune into the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. 
We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at one 866 472 5788. Now back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest today is Brian McDonald. We are talking about his latest book coming out in time for the 21st anniversary of 9-11. It's called Five, Flo- Five Floors Up, The Heroic Family Story of Four Generations in the FDNY. And before the break, <laughs> Um, Brian was going to tell you why it is called Five Floors Up. And then we got off into a ta- an interesting tangent. So why is it called Five Floors so Up? So while, while Chief Fian was the captain of this uh, firehouse in Harlem, most of the fires in that section of Harlem it, uh, was the west side of Manhattan in the, uh, in the um, 140 street streets. And uh, most of those streets were lined with tenement houses, five-story walk-ups. And notoriously, that fires in those kind of buildings are the hardest to fight because the, 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 the hallways are narrow, the stairways are narrow, there's a lot of doors, there's a lot of people, and they're made out of wood, which never helps in a fire situation. So they were really hard fires. So the uh, firefighters uh, would say in their kind of gallows uh, way of looking at things that it seemed to them that every time a fire started in one of those buildings was the top floor all the way deep <laughs> in the building. And they said uh, they had a, uh, they came up with the saying that they would go anywhere the fire took them, even if it took them five floors up and five rooms deep. And so uh, that was the, uh, that was the impetus. We were going to use the whole saying for the book, but yeah. it took up too much room. So we just, yeah, five floors up. Yeah, because then it's nice to have the explanation, the fam- heroic family story, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that uh, <laughs> that that's, I can see that, that that's, that's that it wouldn't be easy. It wouldn't be on the first floor, right? <laughs> Walking no, no, right it would never be on the first floor. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, when huh. you think about it and you think about how they fought 9-11, you know, and fought the, uh, went up the towers, you know, some of those firefighters actually climbed like 80 stories. You know how long it takes you to climb? With 60 pounds, 100 pounds, some of gear going up, well, walking up that way while everybody was that could was streaming down to get out of the building. I mean, the the, the collective heroism by firefighters and other first responders, but mostly firefighters that day was astounding, absolutely astounding. Yes, yes. Well, let's talk a little bit about your other book. Was, was it your first book, My Father's Gun? Yes. It was Is my, that uh, what got, got you onto this, uh, you know, journey of one book after the other? That was your... Well, actually, I, I was a, I was a bartender. I was a bartender in a place on the east side of Manhattan called Elaine's. And Elaine's was a very famous restaurant that catered to uh, writers. You know, it was a very famous literary hangout. Yeah. And uh, I was uh, at the time, uh, Elaine was a, she was a character. She was a big, heavy woman and she took no guff from anybody. And she said, she said, why don't you stop fooling around, go back to school? I was in my 30s, late 30s. I was in my mid 30s. So I didn't have any college. I went back to school. I got an undergraduate degree and then I got a graduate degree at a journalism school. And while I was at that journalism school, I took a class 
uh, for nonfiction um, book writing. And the whole purpose of the class was to write a book proposal. And I wrote a proposal and lo and behold, the I wrote a proposal about my own family, about three generations of uh, police officers in it. And lo and behold, the proposal oh. sold. Hmm. And I made enough money to quit bartending and the rest is history. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's a great story in itself, huh? Yeah. Yes, I remember Elaine's. I don't, how, when did it close? Yeah, I think it closed. It, it, it's, I, geez, you know, time goes by, but I think it's about, it might be even like five or six years now. No, it's longer than that. Six or seven years, eight years. Oh, oh. I, I, I stopped, I stopped working there in the year 2000, a year before 9-11. I worked from 1986 to 2000 in the place. Yeah. Huh? Didn't your family tell you you could do better than? <laughs> <laughs> they wanted me to become a cop, but I said I wanted no part of that. You know, I uh -huh. watched too many gangster movies when I was a kid. You know. <laughs> okay, so tell us about that book and what got you to. Um, besides being in that class where you had to write a proposal, what's my father's gun about? Well, I mean, both both of the books, Five Floors Up and My Father's Gun. I was I'm 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 lucky, and anybody out there that's aspiring to write. Uh, cops, and I'm sure this is universal. I'm sure if you went to Paris, it'd be the same way or LA or anywhere. Cops and firefighters are the greatest storytellers in the world. You yes. know, again, especially after you give them a couple of beers, they yes. will tell you stories that will light you light your world up. And I, I grew up with those stories. My my father, uh, and I, I was my grandfather was dead when I was born by the time I was born, but he told about his father my my brother who was on the uh, police force and and cop stories i i just soaked it up as a kid they were the, they were the most exciting yeah. uh, exciting stories in the world so when i got into this class and i was thinking about an idea i said it dawned on me it was just like a white light exp experience it just dawned on me i said wait a minute i got to, I, I don't have to go looking for stories i got a story right in my lap this yeah. this they've been telling so i wrote a couple of uh quick uh introductory pieces to get into the class and the, and the professor sam friedman who who has run this class for many years and out of it is uh, i don't know hundreds of books have been published out of this one class he's an amazing amazing guy and um yeah and it went from there so, so I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky very grateful and very lucky so but um okay why did you what's the title what significance of the title why do you call it my father's gun so when i was a, a a little kid um like eight or nine uh i was we lived in the suburbs then we had moved from the bronx like many people did and we were living in the suburbs and my father would come home from work he was detective squad commander of the 41st precinct which was the famous fort apache or at least it used to be called the famous fort apache it was uh, paul newman did a movie about it going mm. way back anyhow so he was the squad commander of that. So he went to work in a, not in a uniform, in a suit. And he'd come home at night and I'd watch him take off his suit jacket, hang it in the closet. And on his belt would be a gun strapped to his, strapped to his belt. He'd take the belt off. He'd take the gun. He'd put the gun in the holster. He'd put it in the back of the closet. First, it emptied the bullets, which were locked. He'd lock those away. He took the gun in the holster and he put it in the back of the closet. So the story was that one day, you know, when nobody was home, they were all they were out on at, at some uh, my mother and dad were out. My brothers were all, all out and I was alone in the house. 
that gun was speaking to me. I had to get that gun. I had to see what it felt like. Yes. So I went up and I took the gun out of the co closet, you know, and I played like I looked in the mirror with me holding it. And I was surprised uh -huh, how uh -huh. heavy it was and everything. And I was like, it was so that was the opening anecdote of, of the of the of the book. And kind of it was the gun that separates cop families from everybody else. It's that like that's that's the difference, you know. Everybody watches their father come home. Very few people watch their father come home and take a gun off their belt. Mm, mm, mm. so. And how old were you when you did that? Uh, when I, when I, I was like eight, seven, eight, something like that. I mean, you know, um, according to Freud, <laughs> and I am a Freudian, <laughs> um, a gun is a phallic symbol. Yes, it is. And yes, a little boy is. would like to hold I would like to have and to hold. We can do a whole nother show on this stuff, Carol, because I got plenty of material about that too. I, I agree. I agree. Do you uh, write about that in, in the book? No, I don't. No, I don't. I, I don't. But you know, uh, but uh, it certainly it certainly crossed my mind. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. So what made you um? What made you decide that you didn't want? I mean, didn't want to be a a, a cop? Oh, uh, just yeah. Well. You know, I was I was kind of a wild, wild kid. I did a lot of things that I shouldn't have done. You know, I, I didn't have the greatest um, relationship with my dad because of that. And, um, you know, throughout my teens and early 20s, I actually took the test for the uh, for the police department. And at the time, the city was not hiring. It was a budget crunch and they weren't hiring cops. But I didn't want to become a cop anyhow. And uh, that's how I got into the bar business is because of this mm -hmm. wild nature I had. And uh rebellious nature. So, uh, you know, and then time went by, I found I, 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 I actually got some help and straightened my life out a little bit. And uh, then, uh, you know, that's what uh, precipitated my me going back to school and, um, and getting a degree and stuff like that. So there was a so so like so it was a rebelliousness against your father. He was he a very strict father? You know, he wasn't that strict. He was a he was a distant guy. He was not. He was a kind of cold guy. Uh -huh. He didn't have a lot of uh, emotions. Um, you know, he wasn't a you know like a stereotypical drunken uh, cop father at all. Uh, he was uh, he was uh, you know he went to mass every Sunday. He was a very uh, you know he was like a real right down the middle narrow uh -huh. right down the middle guy. And uh, you know, I I thought he was the most boring guy in the world. Meanwhile. <laughs> Meanwhile, he was the squad commander of the busiest precinct in New York. He was like, you know, he was anything but boring. Uh -huh. But I, I saw him, I saw him as, uh, you know, and it's funny, later in his life, he, he, he lived till he was 97. And later in his life, after he couldn't uh -huh. drive anymore, I mean, he was, he was sharp right till he left, uh, right till he, uh, right till he died almost. But when he couldn't drive anymore, I, I ended up driving him. I ended up taking care of him. And that relationship that had been so, oh, wow. so fractured became, uh, he became my closest friend at the end of my, and my biggest supporter, my biggest writer, writing supporter. And so really. wait, so did, so he, so he not only contributed, he, was the book out before he died, My Father's Gun? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, oh no, he helped, he helped with the book. Uh, he uh -huh. did, as a matter of fact, he, he'd tell you that he wrote most of it. He <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess maybe his coldness came from um, that he saw so many horrible things and he didn't want to sort of um, dirty you, you know, didn't want to, uh, didn't want you to hear all of that, you know, all the bad stuff that he had to see. 
Yeah, that and and uh, he he didn't you know he grew up in he didn't grow up in New York. He grew up in the coal mines of Pennsylvania. Abject poverty, abject poverty during the depression. His father and his father was a drinker, and a, not a very nice guy. So I think that uh, distance and coldness came from that his own childhood uh -huh. that was so hard and and, and uh, difficult. Yeah, I mean hard and difficult, hard and cold. You know. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, let's, we're, we're kind of starting to run out of time. So I want to mention four of the places that you know already that are readings uh, and events that where people can meet you in person. So September 6th, which is the launch day, um, uh, Ryan will be at the Corner Bookstore on 93rd and Madison between 6 and 7.30 p.m. Then on September 15th, He'll be at Union Square, uh, the Barnes and Noble at Union Square, and also um, accompanying him will be New York Times bestselling author um, of Ordinary Heroes, Chief Pfeiffer. And then on September 29th at the National 9-11 Museum, the one that's still here, um, he will be on a panel where there'll be a panel discussion and a reading. So those are all places that you can meet him in person and otherwise, you can pick up the book either from Amazon, of course, um, or is there some other website that you would like people to go to? Well, no, Amazon, it's uh, pre-selling now on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and all the places you can go through the publisher. It's Grand Central Publishing, which is a great publisher, a publishing uh, company, imprint, and you could go through them and buy the book. If you go to the publisher's page or even the Amazon page, there's a um, uh, a, a sample of the audio book, uh, which is terrific. Um, uh, and uh, also information about me. I have a, a writer's page on my Amazon page, an oh, author's right. page rather. So uh, you can get all the information on my old books, a little bit about my time working at Elaine's and uh, what have you. So. Yes, I'm sure that must've been very interesting working, talking about stories, getting stories from a tending bar at Elaine's, tons of stories. Tons. <laughs> tons, of... <laughs> yeah, tons of stories. Well, it was a pleasure um, meeting you and um, talking about your books. Uh, let me just um, tell people again, my guest is Brian McDonald and his book, and McDonald is M-C-D-O-N-A-L-D. Um, and the book again is Five Floors Up, the heroic family story of four generations in the FDNY. Well, I wish you all the best success with your book. And you, um, I, yes, I think it is, you know, so great to memorialize these, these heroes um, because, <laughs> because kids in the future need to uh, need to know that there were such heroes. So thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's couch and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.